Talkin' Live with host Lamar Bearden is the call-in talk show where your opinion matters. Talkin' Live is a show for everyone and deals with the issues that are important to you. It's your chance to talk with host Lamar Bearden and have your opinion heard. You can also view our show archives at TalkinLive.com. Tonight, and we are proud to have him as our guest. He is an author. Uh, he's an award-winning author, and he does a lot of, of books and, and, you know, sells a lot of books of on different stars like Lucy Wright and uh, just tons of, you know, people that are in the, the movie business and uh or film business, they call it now. And uh, we got him as a guest, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mark and uh, uh, Jeffrey Mark. And uh, I'm saying your name right, right? You are indeed. It is a pleasure to be on with you, Lamar. Yeah, and we're hoping uh, to get some feedback on you when you're doing something, what you're doing today and what you're... Uh, you know, pushing out there, maybe some of your books or, or some uh, projects you're working on. We, we'd like to All know right. about it now. We can do the commercial up front, and then we can talk about whatever you'd like. Well, you see pictures of Lucille Ball on the wall behind me. The new Lucy book. I wrote the Lucy book 20 years ago. The new Lucy book, which will be her whole career between two very big pages of a book is coming out for Christmas 2024. My memoirs, The Devil Was Born in Brooklyn, is also coming out next year around holiday time. My new album, Jeffrey Mark Sings the Ella Fitzgerald Songbook, is out for Christmas this year. I have my own radio show, Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, that can be heard every week in major cities as well as a podcast. But I, I've, I've been an actor on the Broadway stage. I'm a jazz singer. I'm a comedian. I've written and produced for television. Uh, I'm an MC. Pretty much, if you turn on your electric toothbrush, you can probably find me. Yeah. Well, did you ever you know, work with... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Did I work with him a while down for raise money up? Uh, my mind just left me but I, I worked with him raised money John Smoltz and uh and we worked down in Atlanta to raise money for the hospital and stuff like that. Uh you said comedian I am trying to think of his name. Uh he was called uh oldest hobo. Uh, he's probably passed away now. He was on uh, Jay Leno. Did you, gotcha. Did you ever meet him, the oldest hobo? I've never had the chance to work with him. I, I was very lucky. I've been very lucky in my career. I have been mentored by some incredible folks. Milton Berle, Steve Allen, Lucille Ball, Jack Carter. Uh, I've known most of Shelley Berman, the great stand-up comedians. And God bless them. They thought I had some talent and tried to help me, and they did. Uh, so I, I always call myself the luckiest guy in the world. Because I started my career at 15, 
when most kids don't know what they want, I knew exactly what I wanted. And I went after it, and it's been a very successful and long and, and hard work. But I'm in show business 49 years now. And uh, I've known the greats, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Yeah, well, Lucy, uh, I'm sure you met Lucy, and hadn't you? I got uh, to interview her, and she, she really she made my year, or she made my career. Yeah. I asked her, how come, as the years went by, you dropped two things that was kind of a signatures of the character, the Lucy character? You know, the crying jag, ah, and that little noise she used to make when she was found out doing something wrong. I said, why did you drop those? Because they were so much a part of your character. And she said, young man, that is the best question anyone has ever asked me about my comedy. And that opened up a floodgate of things for me to ask her. And I used every word she said in the Lucy book. Yeah, I'm. I used to watch her show and her Vivian, and uh, did her and Vivian. I understand that they couldn't get along sometimes. I think if you put two women who love each other like sisters, and have them work together week in week out for oh you know fifteen or sixteen years, there's gonna be times when one of them gets on the other one's nerves. Yeah. They 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 got started badly. Do you want to hear the story of how, of how they got started? Because that'll probably answer your question. Miss Ball had had a hit radio show called My Favorite Husband. And Bill Paley, who owns CBS, wanted to bring that show to television. And Miss Ball said, you know, why should I do that? She was making an enormous amount of money every week for reading a script because on radio you didn't have to memorize you didn't have to wear costumes or learn blocking she said i'll do it if you'll let desi play my husband and there's a very long story about how they didn't want him but they finally agreed but they needed the fred and ethel characters and they, they didn't know who to ask desi went and saw vivian vance who had been a broadway star uh understudied to ethel merman and then her own hit shows went to uh, San Diego, down from Los Angeles, saw Vivian in a show and hired her on the spot. Well, comes the day of the first reading and Lucille meets Vivian and she says, who, who are you here to read for? And Vivian said, read for? I've been hired. I've signed a contract. I'm Ethel Mertz. And Lucille said, you can't be Ethel Mertz. You're young. You're pretty. You have red hair like mine. And Vivian was very wise. She said, Miss Ball, what does Ethel Mertz look like to you? And Lucille said, oh, she's, she's dumpy and she wears bad clothes and she has badly bleached out hair. It's frizzy with dark roots and um, she lumps in all the wrong places. And Vivian said, I can't give you that woman this week, but I promised she's coming. And what they did was Vivian went and got her hair all bleached out and frizzed. And they bought Vivian all of her clothing, her underwear, her stockings, her shoes, one size too small. So no matter how thick or thin she actually was, she looked overweight because the clothes didn't fit. 
and the shoes made her walk not gracefully because Vivian had been a great beauty actually. And she, she figured out how to make Miss Ball happy and, and, and Miss Ball and Miss Vance learned to love each other. And they, they were very close friends. That's back fell down. So how, I always learn like Lucy when uh, when she get in trouble with Desi, and Desi, you know, he would say this thin, the thin, you know, you don't Cubans use that word, the thin. I got a friend, I got a Cuban friend down in Miami, and and, and he says man, man, man. He don't use say man, he says man, and and you know I always got you know good kick out of hearing Desi talk. It was it, it was a very strange thing about that. You brought up a very, very good point. The writers learned early on that they didn't really have to write much as far as Desi's accent was concerned. In real life, when he spoke English, he was hard to understand. He, sp- he spoke very quickly, much more quickly than Ricky Ricardo did. And with that heavy accent, in fact, even in Spanish, other Spanish-speaking people had a hard time understanding him because he talked. Fernando Lamas said, I used to tell Desi to speak in English. I couldn't understand his Spanish. So they found places where the Lucy character could make fun, but they had to be careful. They had to be careful not to make Lucy and Fred and Ethel seem racist in any way. And they found that while the audiences would laugh if Lucy made fun of him, if Fred and Ethel or other people made fun of Ricky's talking, the audience didn't like it. They were very protective of these characters. So they they used making fun of his accent sparingly, usually when Lucy was on the defense for something she did. Then it was like, all right, husbands and wives sometimes argue unfairly. But it was very funny. Desi, uh, really his only biggest acting experience had been in musical comedy on the stage. And he made a very few films where he played mostly comedies. It turned out he was great. He was very, very funny in what he did. Yeah, I think it was too. And, you know, when there's two together like that, it makes it even more funny. The reason it won, you know, funny... When Ethel and made fun of them, it's because they were a team and they know what to, you know, they was putting it together the way that, to be funny. And everybody liked them, so they felt like they was, you know, not being fair, you know, by making fun of them. And, or not, you know, they, they, you know. the more they say in real estate, it's location, location, location. On a situation comedy, it's casting, casting, casting. The show was brilliantly written. All those years, from 1951 to 1960, there were only four writers, five writers, if you count Jess Oppenheimer, the head writer. Only five people wrote all of those shows. They only had three directors all those years. But the casting... Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball and Vivian Vance and Bill Frawley were brilliant at what they did. And they brought so much of themselves to the characters. And the writers were very smart. The writers didn't know that Bill Frawley had been a big vaudeville star as a song and dance man. 
they didn't know that Vivian Vance had starred on musicals on Broadway for Cole Porter. But once they found that out, they worked it into the shows. Turns out Desi Arnaz can dance. Turns out Desi Arnaz is funny and is good with props. Oh, look, Lucille Ball is... So the writers work with the best parts of the actors. There were actors who were considered for Fred and Ethel. And had they been hired, the show would not have been nearly as funny. We have those four wonderful people, five great writers, and three great directors to thank for how wonderful that show was. Yeah, and for them, too. I, I imagine some of the, the, the shows wrote, they maybe got involved and changed some of that writing, too, maybe, to make it more, more interesting. They didn't do that back then. For those of you, my Georgia friends and fans who are watching us, when they shoot a sitcom today in front of a live audience, it could take four or five hours. If a line doesn't get a big laugh, they stop everything, and the writers huddle together, and they come up with new lines, and they try them out in front of the audience. If they laugh, they put it in the show. Miss Ball insisted that I Love Lucy be shot as close to a play as possible, meaning they didn't stop. They didn't rewrite. They didn't go back and change things. The show started on a Monday. The cast and crew sat around a table. The script was read. If they felt there were parts that were weak, the writers worked on it. If in rehearsal, any of the people involved came up with something, it was put into the script. But once they got to Thursday, because the show, it's amazing. All of that talent was put together in four days. For most of the time, I Love Lucy was on the air. By Thursday at 7, they had to be ready to go. They, they, they froze it. They did a dress rehearsal in front of an audience and then the actual show. And that was it. That's what's so amazing about it. It wasn't rewritten and changed. And the only thing they did in editing, if a joke got a laugh that was too long and the show ran long, they had to cut down the laugh. And every once in a while... Maybe the audience got distracted by somebody working on the side and a joke that was good didn't get a big enough laugh. Sometimes it helped it along a little bit, but that happened in editing afterwards. And they used their own audience laughter for that. But for the most part, when you watched I Love Lucy, what you saw was what you would have seen had you been sitting there. And uh, that's not how it's done today at all. So you're very right, Lamar. Today, they rewrite and rewrite, and they'll, they'll keep the audience there all night to get what they hope is a good show. I've been there. I've been on sitcom sets and watched this and watched actors reading off of cue cards lines they'd never seen before. Miss Ball insisted they used no cue cards at all. Everybody had to memorize their scripts. They had to be in the moment. She felt if you weren't in the moment, if you didn't know what was coming, you couldn't be as funny. And in later years, when Miss Ball started using cue cards herself, she wasn't as funny. Yeah, she broke her own rule. Yeah, I worked with uh, Ned Beatty one time up in Nashville. They'd done a show, and he couldn't. He got to the point he had, they had to read it to him. And, uh, yeah. of course, he's passed away now. But he was a nice guy, too. 
He loved chess. He was a very he, nice man. Uh, what you're alluding to, in case our audience doesn't know, is that Ned Beatty lost his vision. Uh, very slowly over a number of years, they didn't talk about it in the press, but there came a point where he was practically blind and could no longer read a script or see cue cards. So everything he said had to be said to him, and he had to memorize it that way, which is very hard to do. But he was an enormously nice, talented man. Yeah, and uh, he was friendly. This was uh, a scene where I was a prisoner, and there's a prisoner. It was in the Nashville jail, one of the jails up there. I can't remember what it was, but I was just in it for a little bit. And uh, he couldn't remember his lines, and I kept telling him. And, of course, you know, I understand that Jackie Gleason, you ever meet Jackie Gleason? Uh, I've not met Mr. Gleason, but I've met most of his co-stars. Okay, well, uh, I understand that he never read scripts, that he always, you know, free freelance, you know. Well, that's not, there's truth in what you're saying, but it's not 100% true. Yeah. What happened was, and, and people point to the honeymooners, of course. What people don't realize is that for the first 52, 53, 54, the first four seasons of The Honeymooners, The Honeymooners was a sketch. Yeah. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes inside of a longer hour show. There was a variety show where Mr. Yeah. Gleason played all kinds of characters and people sang songs and dances and things. And then right in the middle of the 50s, they shot 39 of these things as a half-hour sitcom. so And then after that, it went back to the variety show again. All through the years, what Mr. Gleason did was he didn't like to rehearse. He felt, especially as Ralph Cramden, that if he rehearsed it too much, somehow the funny would go away. So he would read the script. He would know what the punchlines were, certainly. He wasn't making all this stuff up. Mm. What he didn't necessarily know is where to stand or to handle the props that are there because he did it with very little rehearsal. So Audrey Meadows and Art Carney and um, whoever else was on the set with him on any given episode uh, had to doubly know their lines, know the cues, and they had to know his lines. So if he forgot something, they could feed him the line just enough for him to pick up on it and say the right lines. And there was a signal. And if you watch The Honeymooners, and I know some of you, my Georgia friends out there, love The Honeymooners. As Ralph is going back and forth in the kitchen, he touches his tummy like this. That's a signal to the cast that he has no idea what's coming up next. Yeah. And that's where they come in and they help him. And yeah. I couldn't work that way. It drove Art Carney crazy. It drove Audrey Meadows and Sheila McRae crazy. But it worked for the sketch. That's really performing without a net. And you got to give him credit for it because he had uh, the word I want to use. I can't say on public television. Let's just say he had enormous confidence. Yeah, I, I always liked him in the smoking the bandit. That's what I liked him in. And uh, I, I just thought Jeff Foxworthy. I was wondering, you know, if you know ah, Jeff. Sure. Yeah. Oh, Jeff, is, Jeff created a whole 
new area of comedy, re- really uh, the 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 uh, country comic, the redneck comic. I, I know redneck is not necessarily a very nice term, but it's what he called himself. Uh, you, you, you know, you're a redneck if it's had just stopped. Weird. It had stopped. Um, people yeah. thought it was politically incorrect, and he brought it back, and he brought it back very successfully. Yeah, redneck's just a. You know, just a word to me, you know, and don't don't offend me at all. Some people, you know, uh, just get offended everything nowadays. They just can't, they just can't stand this. They can't stand that. They can't stand it. Just it have been, you know, just open to everything. If you want to disagree, that's your privilege, but don't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> you know, that's uh, you know that's the way some people just. Get offended at everything. I, I, I don't like to be called names. I don't yeah. call other people names. Yeah. But when it comes to comedy, there is a fine line there. There's yeah. comedy yeah. that can hurt some people's feelings. Yeah. What do you do? You don't do the comedy or you do it anyway and hope that people understand what you're trying to do. Look, there are comedians out there who purposely try to offend. They think it's going to make them famous by being offensive. I don't find that funny. Yeah, but there I don't are people either. out there who walk the line. They come right up against being offensive, but they don't. They're respectful enough that any intelligent person should be able to understand what they're doing. And I like that. You know, if it's really funny, yeah. well, it's just well, like all the dirty words comedians use. I've never said a dirty word on stage ever. In fact, I've gotten yelled at. They said you're 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 a grown man. You're you're over middle aged. Why don't you say dirty words in your comedy? I say because it's not who I am. And there are some people who are dirty, who work who work blue, as they say, who I think are very funny. And there are some they use these words. Every third word is a four letter word. That's not funny to me. Oh, look, he said the dirty word. Ha, ha, ha. No, no. It has to be funny. Chris well, Rock uses foul language, but he's funny. There are other people I won't mention. I have no taste so, for them at all. So you write, you write for some comedians, right? I have, yes. Yeah. You know, it's all about respect to me. It's called respect. Everybody should have respect for one another, respect for what they believe. That's their, their, their choice. Everything, everybody should respect one. Even if you don't agree, you just say, well, I don't agree, but don't make a big deal out of it. It's respect, everybody. That's where I... In, in the uh, big picture, sir, I agree with you. If we were to get into specifics, which is not my area, my area is show business, uh, if we were getting to specifics, there are times when people who disagree hurt people. See, that, that's, that's, you can't say I'm allowed to do and say anything I want and hurt people because that's disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can have it both ways. I get to say and do whatever I want, and you must respect me, but what I say and do doesn't respect you. No, that's not a right. That's not yeah. a right. Hurting other people is not a right. Um, well, you, there are a lot know, of people in this country I don't agree with. 
And as long as they are respectful, I can have dinner with any of them and enjoy myself. I'm the same way. I'm just like a, you old, you heard the saying, I'm just like a duck that just rolls off my bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's like water rolling off a duck's back. <laughs> I have friends of every religion, every color, every persuasion, every belief. I love them all. They are respectful of what I believe in. They support me as a person. They support my career. I'm very grateful. I, it's hard. This, this is a sentence. It's hard to come out of my mouth because it sounds so egotistical. I have millions of fans. God bless every single one of them. But when one of them gets out of control and happens sometimes, or I'll be appearing in public somewhere and someone begins asking me about the private lives of some of the people I know. I kind of put my foot down. It's like, why do you need to know that? Why no, is it your business what some never... celebrity has done privately? Would no. you want to talk about your life that way in the open public? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't never ask someone about the private life. I when, I'm, you know... when I'm asked about private lives, it's most especially about Lucille Ball or Ella Fitzgerald or Ethel Merman, because I've written books about these people. Yeah. And I say this, and I give the same answer because it's true. Go into your own neighborhood, knock on any door, immediately inject someone with truth serum, sit down and ask them about their private lives. And you're going to get the same answers I would give you about these people, except there wouldn't be famous names involved. We all have things that are private. We all have done things that are not so nice. We all have heartbreak and heartache. We all have children who misbehave or parents who misbehave. That's true. It's part of being a human being. And if someone chooses to go public with something, like it is no secret, I am 34 years clean and sober. In my late teens and early 20s, I had a drug and alcohol problem. Yeah. I don't well, keep that a secret because I want people to know. And if you're watching me today, this applies to you. If you don't want to drink or drug, there's help for you. You don't have to. Yeah. But if someone were to write about what I was like back then, that's none of their business. That's, that's my business. Yeah. I absolutely. That's the way I look at it. You know, and I, you know, I'm in the recycling business. I don't really know that or not, but. I do recycling of batteries. I, I'm an environmental person. Good. I, and I recycle batteries for oil companies, you know, the drill batteries, the military batteries, the lithium-ion, the lithium-ion phosphate, the lithium-ion, you know, lithium, 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 and, you know, different batteries. I did a, I did a little short thing on uh, how to bag for the consumer. I did it for the EPA, and I sent it to them, and uh, I put it out, you know, how to take care of your, like, consumers, like your batteries at home, you know, how to handle them, put them in a plastic bag, put them, put them in a bucket, you know. I didn't use my company name. I just did it as a, you know. A, Citizen. Yeah, just uh, you know, to make people, and don't overcharge your batteries, uh, don't leave them charging overnight, stuff like that. It could cause a fire, you know, the different things like that. And 
course, I did uh, telecom equipment, plastics, uh, uh, electronics, computers. Uh, I mean, you, you know, name you, it. Lamar, you bring up a good point. Huh? Well, you bring up a good point, sir. When I was going to school, no, no, mind you, I'm an old guy now at this point. People consider me to be an old guy. I don't know that I like that so much, I'm, but I'm older, certainly, than I used to be. When I was going to school, they taught good citizenship, that it was everybody's responsibility to take care of the planet, to throw out someone's garbage, to be helpful to your neighbor, oh, help that lady carry her bag. When was the last time you even heard the term good citizenship used anywhere? So I applaud you, sir. Congratulations for being a good citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm working on the solar panels, too. You know, I think companies that manufacture stuff should make a, a plan for the end of life products. So it will. I agree. And, and I agree. Absolutely. And they don't have a plan for the solar panels. They don't got one. And the lithium-ion, you know, I know about the stuff that comes out of China because I have a lot of friends from China. Hey, do you know uh, Tim, uh, Tim uh, Conley? I don't. He's a director. He worked on metrics and all that. Uh, his, his dad-in-law... It's one of my business partners from Taiwan, and they recycle batteries. And I got a visitor coming to Malaysia. He recycles batteries too. They have refineries and all that kind of stuff. Malaysia, China, South Korea, and all them places. And uh, that's something I like. You know, I'm interested in. But I, it's Lam it's Lam this. Lamar, really... I, have, I have a question for you, sir. Yeah, you've got me here. You can discuss batteries with almost anyone, but this is your opportunity to ask me about your favorite I Love Lucy episode or Lucille yeah, Ball yeah, I didn't, or I didn't mean Ella Fitzgerald it. or Ethel Merman or yeah. classic television. You know, yeah. please, this is your chance. Yeah. Use me. Use yeah, my okay. computer brain of show business history. Yeah, I, I just wanted to know a little about me, you know, who you're talking to, uh, but uh, the the episodes are you are you writing from from each episode and putting them all together? How do you? The original Lucy book was Lucille Ball's television career. So from live television in the late '40s, before I Love Lucy, till she died, her own series. Game shows, talk shows, variety shows, commercial, um, PSAs, anything she did that, that appeared on television. The new, so it goes in chronological order year by year. So we use a television season from September through June. Each season we go through the book. The new Lucy book will include all of the many radio shows that she did that I can find because there are some that are missing and all of her films. So it really is her entire career and it'll be in the same format. It'll be, it'll be, you know, season by season going through the years. The original book had a forward by Steve Allen added to that. We're having an, a new forward by Fran Drescher, which makes me very, very happy. 
because she played the nanny on television and uh, she's an enormous fan of Lucille Ball's. So that's what the new book is. It's a lot of hard work because I've literally had to watch and listen to everything Miss Ball has ever done. Uh, and, And not just watch it once, but watch it and listen to it over and over again to catch all the little minutia, all the little, oh, look, oh, look, uh, her, they took off her false eyelashes because she's about to get hit with a pie in the face. That kind of thing. The fans love that kind of minutia. Yeah. And then I have interviews with people who were there. Oh, yeah, I took off her eyelashes because the fans love that kind of thing. The first Lucy book, you know, bought jewelry for me. I'm hoping the new one will will, will, will do as well. You know, I, Do you have uh, a favorite episode, Lamar? Uh, yeah, when she's, uh, you know, the candy on the, the conveyor. The candy, fan, yeah. candy factory. Yeah, I like that one. They actually went uh, to the farmer's market on Fairfax Boulevard in Hollywood, where there used to be, um, it's, it's not there anymore, uh, in California, a very well-loved company of chocolates is called C's Candy, S-E-E apostrophe S. And they they found a chocolate dipper there, and they brought her into the studio. Now, she didn't quite understand what was demanded of her. Really, all she was supposed to do was just wrap those chocolates. But when Lucille Ball gets a fly off of her face. She dug deep in that chocolate and whacked Miss Ball across the face. That's not in the script, the way that happened. That was something that happened because the person there was not a professional actor. There was someone who was an actual chocolate dipper. Just like when she stomps on grapes, the woman she's in the grape vat with was not really an actor. She was somebody who spoke Italian and didn't quite grasp what was going on. And because of that, it was twice as funny. But I think most people you know would would pull out the chocolate factory, the grape stomping, and Vitamita Vegemite as the three funniest things she ever did. Miss Ball's favorite thing to do was the Vitamita Vegemite episode. But her favorite episode, and nobody knows why, was an episode of The Lucy Show with Dean Martin. She said that was her favorite one to film. Because Miss Ball, after I Love Lucy, had The Lucy Show, and then Here's Lucy, and then Life with Lucy. That that Lucy character survived a very long time. Yeah, I remember the episode with John Wayne. I really liked that. You remember when Well, she used John him twice. She used him on I Love Lucy with the Footprints and Grauman's Chinese. And then she used him in a very funny episode on The Lucy Show. Uh, twice, Mr. Wayne came through for her because he was funny. He allowed himself, you know, John Wayne, his whole image was very macho and manly. But he allowed himself to get silly, to get the laughs. And it worked. Because he yeah. respected her and respected her work and trusted her that put into her hands, he'd be okay. That's how she got people like Harpo Marx and Van Johnson and Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and Ethel Merman to come on with her 
because they trusted her instincts. Yeah, she was a pretty powerful woman in Hollywood anyway at that time. Well, you know, she and Desi produced, meaning that there was a producer for I Love Lucy, wonderful genius called Jess Oppenheimer. But Desi was the executive producer. And then eventually in 1957, they bought what had been RKO Studios and made it Desi Lu. So Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz owned the biggest movie studio in the world. And when Mr. Arnaz and she divorced and Mr. Arnaz decided to retire from running a studio, she became the first female head of a studio. And it happened to be the biggest studio in the world. And for those of you maybe who aren't old enough to remember all of this, after Mr. Arnaz left, Desi Lu also gave us Mannix with Mike Connors, Mission Impossible, and Star Trek. So all of that was also false yeah, fingerprints you, all over them. I'm just going to ask you about Star Trek. They was involved with Star Trek, right? Well, it was the there was a period of time where Desi Lu was having a hard time selling new sitcoms to CBS. CBS always had the first thanks, but no thanks. And CBS did not want Star Trek. So they took it to NBC. They made this pilot. And NBC didn't like the pilot. They didn't like the guy playing the lead because it was a different character. They didn't like Mr. Spock's pointy ears. They didn't like that number one was a female. So they reshot a new pilot with Bill Shatner and kept Leonard Nimoy in as Mr. Spock and NBC bought it. And uh, it's very rare for a production company because it costs them money to pay f- twice for a pilot. The same thing happened with All in the Family, although Miss Ball had nothing to do with that. There were three pilots made of All in the Family, each time the same script but with different people playing the kids before finally CBS bought that. Sometimes you just have to have people who really, they say, no, this belongs on the air, and we're going to keep at this till it gets there. So that's what happened with Star Trek. She knew it belonged on the air. And look at all the money it's made. Yeah, it's still playing, too. It's Lucy's show still on public domain. Some of her shows are, ain't they? Uh, None of her shows are really in the public domain. There is a season of The Lucy Show that Viacom, who owns it now, forgot to up the copyright on. So there's about 30 episodes that are in the public domain. The rest of them are still owned by Viacom. Viacom owns I Love Lucy and The Lucy Show. Lucy Arnaz and Desi Arnaz Jr., through their company, Desi Lu, comma, T-O-O, because their names are also Desi Lu. They own Here's Lucy and Life with Lucy and the specials that Miss Ball did in the 1970s. But they're all available. They're, they're, they're all available on DVD. And a lot of the platforms uh, you find old programming on, you'll find these shows. So for those of you who are Lucy fans, she, she's not hard to find at all. Yeah, we uh, we got some shows we run on our Roku channel too. A few, and you know the one that we checked out, made sure this. Uh, oh yeah, you know, if you if you watch Roku, I Love Lucy is on. 
So um, I don't. No. I don't think I Love Lucy is ever going to go away. I think I Love Lucy. There are certain shows. I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Andy Griffith Show. I, I don't think those are ever going to go away. There's something evergreen about them, and and the original Star Trek series. Uh, just for decades and decades, and every five or ten years, young people rediscover these shows and just love them. Uh, even, even my grandchildren, who won't watch anything black and white, it has to be in color. They love I Love Lucy. Yeah, I like the, I like the black and white, the old shows, uh, you know, like Lucy Dunn and all the others. You know, Bonanza... If I'm not uh, wrong, I think Bonanza was the first color show to come out on uh, TV, wasn't it? Bonanza was the first hour-long filmed show broadcast in color. Yeah, that's what I thought. And, of course, Lucy was black and white, and then it moved over. And, of course, back then they had two separate beds and all all that. They slept in and all that. Well, there's a reason for the separate beds. When Lucille Ball got pregnant towards the end of the first season, they didn't know what to do because the show is slapstick. And if Miss Ball can't do slapstick, what are we going to do with her? Uh, Hide her behind, you know, big chairs or, you know, behind potted plants. And finally, it was just Oppenheimer, the producer, who said, why don't we just have Lucy Ricardo become pregnant? Well, the problem was... Back in 1952 and 53, you couldn't use the word pregnant on television. And they separated the beds out because, good heavens, people might figure out how she got pregnant. So they made them sleep in separate beds so there'd be nothing naughty about it. And they brought in a minister, a priest, and a rabbi to look at all the scripts about the pregnancy and her having the baby and they said, there's nothing wrong with these. This is a natural part of life. And the gentle humor in the pregnancy episodes reflected what everybody was going through who was having a baby. Uh, but that's the reason for the separate beds. And the separate beds things, Lucy, Lucy and Desi were the first to sleep in one bed together. Next was Ozzy and Harriet, who were, like Lucille and Desi, a real married couple. And the next people after that were Darren and Samantha Stevens. Everybody else slept in separate beds after that. I don't know whose morals they were trying to protect, but it seems to me if we're showing a loving couple, they're sharing a bed as part of being a loving couple. Unless one of them snores, then you have separate beds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I remember a lot of shows that she did. I used to watch it all the time. I still watch the shows. Uh, Just like you said, they, that humor and that comedy will never go away because people have, they spent the older people that knows it, you know. You might even get younger generations might even get to watching it. Oh, they are. I just said a few minutes ago, young people, the show wouldn't still be on if young people weren't watching it. Because you have to get that big of an audience to have the show. Yeah, it's... it's, I shouldn't shouldn't admit this. 
because it makes me sound just a little crazy. I have them all memorized. I can, my assistants, like who come, this is, this is my office, my assistants who come and work with me and they'll see me, I'll play the show on in the background, but I'm doing something else. So all I'm doing is hearing it. They said, why are you laughing? I said, I see the show in my head, frame for frame. It's in here. And likewise, sometimes I'll have the show on like right here at my desk. I'll be watching, but I turn the sound off to do something else. And they say, why are you laughing? I said, because I know what they're saying. I've spent so much time studying the work of Lucille Ball. It, it really has become part of my DNA. And you know what? I'm pleased. Yeah, Miss Ball's help, the help of Lucy Arnaz, the help of Desi Arnaz Jr. Greatly helped my career. And I'm, I'm very grateful to the Arnaz Ball family for that. They've been wonderful to me. Yeah, well, so you got three books coming out. Right. I have two books and an album. The new Lucy book next year. My autobiography, The Devil Was Born in Brooklyn, next year. And then this fall, uh, Jeffrey Mark sings the Ella Fitzgerald songbook. It's me doing about 16 songs that Ella used to do in her concerts. And uh, those are the projects that are coming. And then my radio show every week, Jeffrey Mark plays Ella. Yeah. Uh... I, uh, you know, I'd like to see that book. I'd be glad to see that book when it comes out. Well, perhaps you'll have me on again when it does. We'll send you one. Okay, we'll be glad to have you on any time. Get a lot of knowledge from you on Lucy and uh, other stuff. That I'll tell you what, Lamar. You help me find a place to go sing near you to promote my album, and I'll come on live on your show with you. Okay. Well, let me tell you what our plans are here. We're planning on uh, getting on cable. Now, this program right here, we're doing it. We're going to record it, and we will send it off to another network that plays, has uh, cable, three cable connections, uh, Comcast and, uh, you know, Link. Well, there's the one in Dalton, Georgia. You know, I don't know if you know what Dalton is. But they have, you know, it's Spectrum, and we'll put it on Spectrum on the local area. Also, we'll put it on the Dalton area. It covers, you know, North Georgia and areas like that. And goes into Lafayette, Georgia, four or five cities. We will be playing that, and you're okay with that, I'm sure, right? It helps make me more famous. And we're, you know, we're on Rumble too. You're going to, we're doing Rumble right now. We're doing uh, Facebook right now. Yeah. I mean, and so let's see. I think it goes out on uh, um, Rumble or uh, not Rumble, but uh, Roku. So I think this show goes out as a streaming. I'm not too sure about that. Well, wherever it goes, I'm happy to be. Okay, we'll promote you. Don't worry about that. I appreciate it, sir. And uh, anytime you want to come back home, just let us know. Well, you you know who my publicist is, Harlan Bowl. Let Harlan know you want me, and I'll be back. Okay, well, that was great talking to you. 
You have a my great pleasure, evening. and my pleasure to say hello to all my Georgia friends and fans. All right, you have a great weekend. You too, everybody. All right, bye bye.